Why should a child be afraid to go to school? It was almost like catnip for, for TV producers. They could just go to Boston or these other cities, put their cameras on white protesters, and that became the image that got seared in the minds of American viewers. The Black community was furious that, um, that it was a coordinated effort to disenfranchise them and sort of steal back political power. There was definitely resentment. And so is, is that racist? The real story is overshadowed by sort of a mythical oversimplification. This is Disintegration, a podcast looking back at one of the most painful chapters in Boston's history, the desegregation of Boston public schools in the 1970s. I'm Jesse Remedios. And I'm Valerie Wences. We'll also take a look at where Boston is today. How much has the city changed in the past five decades? Or does it deserve its reputation as one of the most racist cities in America? In 2014, author Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote a cover story for The Atlantic magazine entitled The Case for Reparations. He later said that when he wrote the piece, he didn't think reparations would ever be possible in his lifetime. But now, reparations are actually starting to happen in some places. In small ways, for sure, but the appetite for reparations has definitely increased. Our colleague, Vanessa Bartlett, explores what's being done in a few communities around the country and how that might look in Boston. Boston's municipal government was certainly complicit in the creation of a racially divided city landscape. But now, the public sector has shifted directions. Boston is coming to terms with its history and may even be willing to start the process of making amends. In this episode, we'll be exploring how Boston city government has taken steps to address systemic racism. Well, good evening. (laughs) So, one of my sons asked me the other night, if boys can be elected mayor in Boston. They have been, and they will again someday, but not tonight. Michelle Wu has become Boston's first woman of color to win a mayoral election. Yvette Kozier, Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice at Boston University, said that she remembers a time when city government looked very different. One of the first jobs I had, and it was after high school, was working at Boston City Hall. Uh, I worked there in the summers, and I worked there, um, I think, full-time for about a year while I was uh, studying part-time. And, you know, every day through the main entrance would come in the Boston City Councilors. And at that time, they were all white. There was one female, Rosemary Sansone. She was the only woman on the council. So every single day I saw this parade of white men walk into the council. The newly elected city council boasts a diversity matching that of the city it represents. Boston is now a majority-minority city, with only 47% of the population being white. The new 13-member city council is now majority women and majority people of color. This is the first time in Boston's storied and you know strange political history there is not going to be a, a white male leading the city, and that is huge. 
That is absolutely huge. I, and I think that when I sat there and I watched the parade of counselors going in and out every day, I could never have imagined that. In the structure of the municipal government itself, Boston has adapted as well. After George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, protests swept the country, and Boston was no exception. In the summer of 2020, former Mayor Marty Walsh declared racism a public health emergency. Walsh's administration also created the Department of Resilience and Racial Equity in Boston. They are tasked with dealing with the slow-moving disasters, like the long-term effects of racism in the city, and finding new ways of addressing racial and economic inequality. These changes are a start, but there is room to candidly address policing in the city as well. Police reform conversations are uncomfortable, but necessary for dealing with the consequences that policing can have for public health in the city, according to Kozier. We have to deal with police reform. Right? And that's a topic that gets people very uncomfortable when you begin to talk, think about that and really, you know, peel at the layers of uh, the, the job of police in terms of um, keeping communities safe uh, and the result of policing that brings us to the moment that we're in. Boston isn't the only city reckoning with its racist past. Across the country, cities and towns are discussing the potential of reparations legislation to address racial inequalities created by city, state, and federal policies in the past. Uh, my name is Dr. Ron Daniels. I'm president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century and convener of the National African American Reparations Commission. In general, there will never ever be enough resources to repair uh, the enormous ha- harm of uh, the Holocaust of enslavement um, uh, and the complicity of uh, both national and state and local government and same, uh, and the institution of slavery itself. Uh, there's just no, nothing can ever repay, repair for that. Dr. Daniels works with the National African Americans Reparations Commission to push for reparations legislation. He spoke with me about reparations legislation, which his organization helped pass in Evanston, Illinois. There, the city is offering direct funding to black residents for the purpose of housing justice. And uh, they're making grants, I think, in the range of about $25,000 to eligible uh, recipients who were affected by, uh, particularly by um, redlining in the city, which clearly was demonstrated and clearly qualifies for uh, repair under the definition of uh, reparation. Uh, so that they can use this for a, a uh, towards a down payment for home improvement, um, or a similar you know a similar endeavor. So it is relatively small, uh, but it is a good beginning, and it represents real reparations. Uh, the, city. the city of Evanston has set aside ten million dollars over the next ten years for reparations funding. This funding is going to come out of the money that the city makes off of recreational marijuana sales, which Daniel says is fitting. That is, uh, we think, a very appropriate way to do it because uh, it was, in fact, black communities and brown communities, but particularly black communities that were targeted by the war on drugs. Uh, It was these communities that suffered most uh, in terms of the discriminatory uh, arrest uh, and incarceration of people uh, for possession of marijuana uh, and possession and sale of marijuana. So it is a a very, very... uh, a very, very appropriate way to sort of 
um, repair communities because it was the actual implementation of these discriminatory policies which resulted in a lot of harm being done to the community in the first place. Daniel says the reparations movement is gaining traction in many communities. And there are scores upon scores of cities that are moving forward in an effort to uh, adopt reparations initiatives following the Evanston model. Many of them, some of them are launching out on their own. While local initiatives can be part of the process of reparations, Dr. Daniel says there needs to be federal funding to make amends. The objective, the primary objective of reparations is to repair those who have been harmed. If as a outcome of that, there can be healing between the perpetrators and those who were affected, then that that would be fine. Closer to home, Amherst, Massachusetts passed a bill in June of 2021, which created a fund for potential financial reparations for black community members. Amherst has a history of redlining, which was used to prevent black families from moving into certain parts of their town. In Boston, advocates are citing the same issues as reasons for the city to move forward with creating reparations legislation of its own. The New Democracy Coalition is a Boston-based group organizing for reparations. Kevin Peterson is a founder and executive director of the NDC. I interviewed him in the College of Arts and Sciences classroom building at Boston University. Peterson said that Boston has a ways to go. One thing that we're clear about is that um, prior to any reparations, there must be a public apology. So the city of Boston had, was complicit in the, um, in the transatlantic slave trade. The city of Boston sort of un- underwrote the, the laws and the, and the abilities for, for slave owners to thrive in the city. So we suggest that before we get into any deeper conversations about repair, reparations, we must have a public apology from the next mayor and the Boston City Council. As to what form reparations should take in Boston, Peterson said there are a few ideas out there. One would be a form of educational affirmative action for black students in Boston who can trace their family legacy in the city. Those who can would be offered scholarships by the city for college. Another idea, similar to what happened in Evanston, would be to create a mortgage fund for black people in the city so that they can buy into the Boston housing market, which is particularly important as homeownership among black residents of Boston has been dwindling. Boston may be behind the curve when it comes to reparations legislation, but it may be about to close the gap. Just starting, I'm calling this hearing to an order. Gaveling us in. Um, for the record, my name is Julia Mejia, city councilor at large. I am the chair of the Boston City Council's Committee on Civil Rights and one of the sponsors of this document, docket. I'm joined by my co-sponsor, Councilor Bach of District 8. Um, I believe we've also been joined by my colleagues, Li- Councilor Liz Breeden from District 9 and Councilor Andrea Campbell from District 4. The Boston City Council recently held a hearing to discuss civil rights in the city via Zoom. The hearing was attended by speakers from various advocacy groups in the city who spoke to a need for change and referenced Boston's checkered history with race. So, Dr. Kamara, we will start with you. We have a responsibility to address this at all of its levels of social, economic, psychological impact. The fundamental issue is whether we have the political will to establish a commission that will allow us to engage in depth a process and a comprehensive program. Ultimately, the City Council hopes to create a commission to look into the need for reparations legislation in Boston. Michelle Wu, 
newly elected mayor of Boston, said this about her willingness to work on racial justice initiatives. I support this effort fully. It is it, in our city, especially, this is a moment to make sure that we are addressing the ways in which policies of the past have deprived generations of, of wealth building, and it is a, it is a um, moment to ensure that community members are driving the change and driving the conversation. So I'll continue to work closely with the city council on this and partners in the community. We're going to get this Thank done you. at the federal level. Boston has a lot to make up for, but there are many working to make change. Next, on Disintegration, we look at public art in Boston. Who is it for, and who does it offend? Disintegration is a production of Podcasting 101 at Boston University's College of Communication. I'm Valerie Wences. And I'm Jesse Remedios. Thanks for listening. <laughs>